This talk was given by Ronald Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and is co-director of the Zen Center of New York City. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation, please visit our website at zmm.mro.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. Good morning. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. I wear the Tathagata's teaching, saving all sentient beings. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. I wear the Tathagata's teachings, saving all sentient beings. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. I wear the Tathagata's teaching, saving all sentient beings. If you come only on Sundays and you come at the last moment, you may never see students do what I just did. But students who wear, this is called a Roksu, this is called a Roksu, a Roksu, say that silently to themselves uh, before putting on the Roksu. And the Roksu is a is a traditional Zen garment. It's obviously worn around the neck. And it signifies a practitioner who has taken the Zen precepts, the moral and ethical teachings of Buddhism, to and have committed to living their life, to practice their life based on their precepts. It's a practice. It's a work in progress that will never not be in progress. The Raksu itself is a, um, it's a smaller version of, a, a, uh, of the monk's robe, which you've seen, that they wear uh, from Southeast Asia over one shoulder, one shoulder bare, but it's of Chinese origins. And it's got a, it's got a long history, the Raksu. It, it represents a, a way to wear a robe without wearing a robe. And there were times um, when uh, being Buddhist in China uh, meant you were persecuted. And the, the monastics and lay practitioners were not allowed to practice and so they were uh, forced to work in the fields. And so this abbreviated robe they could wear under their ordinarily, ordinary clothing and still practice. The robe itself that this represents dates back to the time of the Buddha. The Buddha, when he left home, gave away all his possessions, including his clothing, shaved his head. And he, he found pieces of cast-off clothing from the, the, the chattel fields, the places of where the bodies were put, 
the garbage dumps. And uh, he used saffron to dye them because it's antibacterial. And the robes were constructed out of these strips of discarded, ripped cloth. And um, it's said that the pattern of both the robe and the roksu resembles a rice field. And if you look, you can, and if you've seen rice fields in the Orient, it, it exactly looks like that. When a student uh, um, uh, petitions in this order to take the precepts, um, the petition won't even be considered until they've practiced a number of years and their life has in some way reflected what the precepts offer. Uh, and um, and they've begun to study the precepts and, and internalize it as they practice. And the... the so again, in this order, and it's different, different schools of Zen view it differently, um, but the, the student then comes for a week and sews this. Not this one, but this one. Sews this. And <laughs> years ago, you're given instructions, and I'm, I'm laughing because if you follow the instructions to the letter, you will not end up at least years ago, I don't know how it is now, with a carefully constructed rock. <laughs> the instructions are very con- confusing, and if not in some places wrong. It, it was based on the uh, Kia model, the, uh, you know, how to put a piece of furniture together. And you can't possibly do it that way. <laughs> um, but there was always, always some kindly monastic there to guide you through, through those rough times, and you only had a certain period of time to do it. And also, you do it as a practice. You do it as a practice that you're you're chanting uh, internally, uh, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha with each stitch. It's a lot of stitches. Um, uh, as a personal note, and as a non-sewer, uh, I can brag that I'm the second fastest person ever to make a roxu. And the reason is, I made my roxu with Aho, who is a sewer, and I just did what she did. And at the end of that time, I knew no more how to make a roksu than I did at the beginning, <laughs> but my roksu was done. <laughs> um, so, um, I don't think that was the point of it, though. Um, and during that week, you're receiving teachings. The, the jakai, which is the, um, the ceremony at the end of that week where you receive the precepts, um, is a transmission. And in fact, from the perspective of the teacher, when a student becomes a student, that already is the beginning of the transmission of the Dharma. So it's, it happens all along. Now, that may never be completed, but really there is no completion to that. There's a formality to it, but in the reality of it, it's never completed because practice is bottomless. And um, during that ceremony, and, and we'll have a couple of these ceremonies uh, either at the end of this year or beginning of next year where students have requested 
uh, to take the precepts been accepted uh, by the guardian council and by their teacher. Um, um, the teacher will inscribe the Raksu um, with their new Dharma name and with the Gatha that I wrote, Vast is the Robe of Liberation, a Formless Field of Benefaction. I wear the Tathagata's teachings, saving all sentient beings. And stamp it with the seal, and sign it, and date it. And so, um, I asked Tenfu for her Raksu uh, to show you that. And so, here it is. Of course, it's blank. <laughs> because hers is old and well-worn. <laughs> you can... Oh, you can lift? Okay, so bear with me. It's all sewn. I'm not going to rip it out. <laughs> but um, it, it says this, and it's written in the teacher's hand. The teacher writes all that. No, it's okay. It's okay. It's all right. Um, this Raksu is a transmission Raksu. It's a trans- so it's different. Uh, so I, I wanted to show an actual student's Raksu. That's okay. It's okay. So it's also inscribed with their, with their Dharma name. So my Dharma name is Hogan, Tenfu, and so on. Uh, I don't... That or she may have changed. Is, is the Gatha still there? Yes. Okay. Good. Good. There are different color roxes. Um, and in different schools of Zen, uh, and in fact, the, the, the use of the roxo has spread, kind of cross-fertilized to other schools of Zen. So Shambhala uses roxes, I believe, now, and others do as well, non-Zen schools. Um, and um, the colors usually or may indicate something or may not. Some of the colors are pretty wild, so you'll occasionally see schools of Zen that have rainbow-type roxus. Um, in our lineage, the student roxus are, are black, both monastic and lay. Um, the, um, the robes are black for monastic and gray for students and white for lay seniors, um, people who, have, uh, who are formerly senior students and progressed on the path. You can't tell, looking easily tell, looking at a monastic, whether they've, they're a senior monastic or not, but you, they're the ones giving talks. And, um, so usually you, you, you get it. Um, lay students who um, are going to receive transmission and there's usually a period of a number of years from the time that's publicly said until they actually receive and are ready, wear a blue Raksu, and I occasionally still wear my blue Raksu. And uh, a brown Raksu uh, is uh, a Raksu of transmission. So you'll see Shugan often wears his brown. Um, I have to say, when I was given this Raksu, I was horrified at first. (laughs) because it's so ostentatious to my eye. Um, if you look at Shugan's, the one he most usually wears, it's plain brown. And I was hoping for that. <laughs> 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 uh, 
and I guess there's a teaching in there. So I was, I was pretty horrified with how patterned and, to me, ostentatious. But people assured me it's not. It's fine. Calm down. <laughs> um, a couple other things about the rock suit. There's a ring. So the ring, usually, that's given as, as plastic. Traditionally, it was probably ivory. And there's various stories about the ring, but from a Zen perspective, it's the enso, which is the wholeness. Which, um, this particular ring uh, Shugen Roshi gave to me, and it's, it's from Dogen's monastery. It's from a tree that fell down fairly recently, and they... They cut it up into a million rings. <laughs> and, um, and I was very honored to receive that. On the back of the rock zoo, I don't know if you can see this, is sewn in, which again the student does. And in this case, representing the mountains and rivers order, are two mountains and a river. Um, and again, different schools. The Rinzai school usually has, I believe, a... Um, a pine bough a, um, that's sewn in the back. And the Soto school has uh, a different variation of uh, a mountain. Um, but where the mountains and rivers order. So that's uh, specific to that rock soup. So yesterday was an all-day sitting, a Zazenkai. And I gave a talk. Uh, entitled um, Why Zazen? And I challenged the Sangha, if they wished to take it up, to come into the Dyson room and present what is Zazen, present their understanding of Zazen. Um, and so this is part two of that. Uh, and this will work without hearing the first talk, but I would suggest you listen to the first talk if this talk is of interest to you. Uh, it'll be put up online on our website later in the week, probably. Many folks come through these doors. I don't know how many thousands in the course of a year, but a lot. And typically, on Sunday, uh, when most folks come, uh, it's a fairly full house, sometimes a lot fuller than this. And they come, they sit zazen. And we practice together as a sangha. We also do that during the week. And um, starting Tuesday through Saturday night, morning and evening. Some of the folks who come through want to take up the practice in a way that's more direct, that is more directly connected with the teachings of the Buddha, the Dharma, with the Buddha, their own inherent awakening, and with the teaching of a teacher. And they become formal students. And that process comes out of Zazen. There's a deepening of the aspiration, a clarity that comes out of ongoing Zazen. And things, of course, you know, usually when you first come in here, sometimes people have a background in spiritual practice or not. Um, but when you first come in, if it's your first time sitting zazen, all you know is your confused mind. 
which is the mind you've been living with. Uh, now, in some cases, horrifyingly exposed to yourself because you're actually paying attention to that mind. And the exposure is of endless thoughts. Uh, it's not the exposure of the direct living of your life without the interface of the endless thinking. And so some of the folks who come in become students, and that's a process. It's a real process. It requires a, a clarification of why you want to become a student because there's no need to become a student to practice here. Everybody is welcome, and so you can practice here. The, the only... The only time the Buddha asked people to leave the Sangha was when they were disruptive to the practice of others. So that's, that's a pretty wide door. Um, and if you're not a student, whatever you're doing on the, on the mat is yours. And, you know, it's all yours. If you um, go to a Zazenkai and all day sitting, you'll have the opportunity to meet with a teacher and explore your practice and ask questions. But pretty much the student-teacher relationship is kept separate from people who are not students because the students have made a commitment. They've actually made a commitment to themselves to awaken. That's the commitment, that they're going to direct their lives to awakening. Um, and so the teacher gives her or his effort to those people who have made that commitment. And that's only natural, which doesn't mean people who are not students are ignored Thus, if you sit to a certain point where you're willing to do and interested in doing a Zazenkai and going a little deeper than just perhaps daily Zazen or occasional Zazen offers you, um, you have the chance to meet with a teacher in, during the Zazenkai. But other than that, no. And you can also go up to the monastery and go to Sashin. And again, during Sashin, you'll have the chance. Uh, Sashin is a a week-long meditation intensive, very intensive, uh, to meet on a daily basis with a teacher. And someplace along the line, you're actually formalizing the commit commitment you've made to practice, to practice the Buddha's way as the center of your life, as the pivot point of your life. And that doesn't mean your life externally changes. You may have the same job or the same relationships and everything is the same, and, and yet it's not. Because your purpose in living your life is changing as you practice. It takes time in practice. How much time? It's variable and it's no fixed moment. To be able to sit in a way, to be able to sit down and realize that we're beginning to see ourselves not just as this single being, lost and afraid in a world we haven't made, to quote a well-known quote, that this life that we're living, and this practice that we're doing is much bigger than our singular sense of self. It's not disregarding our singular sense of self. The Buddha was a singular sense of self. 
the hundreds of thousands of awakened women and men since the time of the Buddha were singular people. And yet, they had realized what is not singular, or from a different perspective, what is completely singular, or whole. And realized it within themselves as their own body and mind. And from that, nobody is excluded. Nothing is excluded. That's the realization. That's, that's the awakening. So, we sit down and we put a rock saw on top of our head. And we do that every time. When I sit at home, I do that. When I sit here, I do that. There may be occasional times all I can do is touch the rock saw to my forehead in the interests of common sense and expediency, but it's always there. We say, vast is the robe of liberation. So what is being said? There's a lot of reasons people come to practice. A question. We want to know what's real. We want to know who we are beyond the simplistic description, beyond the picture that's on my driver's license. Are there pictures on driver's license in New York State? Yeah, mine's Pennsylvania. Those beautiful pictures. It's a beautiful picture. That I'd like to be that. Maybe the question is, what is death? What does it mean to live and die? What am I doing here? What's missing for my life? How come when I get what I want, some of us are good at that, it's not enough? It doesn't fill me up. Last night, a few of us went out for ice cream. I love ice cream. And it's taken me maybe... 60 years, I'm older than that, 60 years of eating ice cream to only have one scoop. Because in that whole time, I've had two scoops, as at least as an adult, and like at the end of one scoop and a quarter, ugh, you know, I don't feel good anymore. But I still would order two scoops. And there I was last night. One scoop. I really want two. I want two. I did order one, but I wanted to. That our life is like that. Perhaps it's just a vague dis-ease or a permanent sense of anxiety that is our life. Unrelenting, low-grade, or maybe not, anxiety. Always moving towards something else. The energy of our life is always restless, always needs to be fed or denied. And no matter what I do, I can't address that. And each of us has our own journey in life, our own sense of how we work with the subtle energies that are our engine of living, that are who we are in a sense, that kind of drive us to what we do or don't do, what we think, how we act, how we live. So coming here is never wasted. 
Sitting zazen is never wasted. If this is your first time here, you're having a chance to sit zazen. And actually, maybe for the first time in your life, however clumsily you may feel about the process, which after all you're just starting and just beginning to learn, you're having the opportunity to see your own mind in a way that there's no other way to see it this way out of cultivating silence and stillness and seeing it for what it is. So hearing the teachings, learning to do zazen, taking a seat on the zafu or on the chair that you're seated on, which is the seat of your awakening, may further manifest in your life years from now, even if you don't come back here, ever. Decades later, and perhaps in no obvious way, it may affect you. But it will affect you. Your time here will affect you, whether you're aware of it or not. So Zen practice always starts with Zazen. You come in here, yes, we start with a service. And then upstairs, here's how to do it. Of course, no one can tell you how to do Zazen. Here's the instructions, and now sit down and you're on your own. Of course, in the beginning, there's often an investigation, usually before you even come here. Reading books, web search, talking maybe with some others who've experienced it, and then you come to a Sunday program, and you get an orientation, and you get a chance to experience liturgy, which is crucial, which is already pointing at the fact this is not just about you. Something much larger is at stake, and yet it's not a worship service. So what is it? And sitting, and then hearing some teachings. We can't know We will never know on our own how deeply we identify with our sense of self, with our sense of self as our thoughts, that we think we are our thoughts, until we sit down with our breath and focus on that and discover for ourselves how pervasively and endlessly our thought patterns define us, control us, and determine how we think how we speak and how we act, which are the determinations of karma, the determinations of what happens in your life. We may not even be able to remotely recognize how we create distance from the intimacy of our life with our thoughts. That may never, ever occur to us. Until we... Sit and look carefully through Zazen. Let alone the basic realization of awakening of the Buddha, the fundamental teaching of the Buddha, is that from the beginning we are whole and complete. From the beginning, each one of us in this room, and I say of us, is a Buddha. No original sin in Buddhism. There's no original evil in Buddhism. There's evil, 
but we have to create it. We have to make it. Originally, this wholeness and completeness, that is you. Now, those are the words that describe it. The direct experience of that is the practice, the practice of awakening. That's what we're doing here. And every one of us hears my words and comes at this practice from a place that's unique and proper and whole and complete for you yourself. It's karmically proper. It's exactly what should be. It's not deserved or undeserved. It's not punishment or reward. It's just whole. It's just what is. What you do with that is yours. And so the basic realization of the Buddha is not yet ours until we ourselves realize it. And of course, as we practice, what we see usually are problems and challenges and how we can't practice, how we can't possibly do this. And wherever our attention goes, we see that. And of course, biologically, we're designed to see life that way. We're designed to see challenges that need to be defeated. Well, good luck with that spiritual practice, any kind of deep religious practice. It's not going to help you. You know, it's interesting because in this lifetime, living in this society and probably in all societies, we're institutionalized. That's a a term we usually use for people who've been imprisoned for a long time, so long that when they come out into the so-called normal real world that have been so institutionalized by being in the prison that they can't function in that world. Well, we've been institutionalized by our society and we can't function in the real world to one degree or another. And nobody is excluded from that, insight or not. So that's the cost to go our own way to live a life trying to get what we want and avoid what we don't want. That's the cost. You give society permission to put you in jail, unknowingly usually. There may be some intellectual appreciation. You can read all the essays about it online. But that's not yet yours. It's about it, but it's not you yourself, seeing it for yourself. And then we sit. What do you realize when you sit? you realize how difficult it is to be present in the moment. In fact, it's impossible. You can't be present in the moment, moment after moment. We have a very discerning, dualistic mind doing what it's designed to do, but heavily conditioned to only do that. And so we practice. We practice. We look into our mind And we see what takes us away from the awareness of our life, this moment. We see that clearly. We let it go. Give it up. No big deal. All it does is create suffering for us. Separation. Distance from our life. And it has its uses, clearly and obviously. We need to be able to discern. But we give it up and we return back to this breath of this moment. 
We use the breath because it's so easily available to all of us. It's universal to anyone who's alive. And it's bringing us back to now, to this moment, which is ungraspable, of course. How can you grasp now? It's already next now. And how scared it can be to let go of this thought, feeling, how scared it is, scary it can be, because it's our program. We've created it. We've lined it up exactly how we're comfortable lining it up to avoid pain. It's well designed. You have designed it perfectly for yourself to protect yourself. It's our prize. Our thoughts seem to create our life and our sense of self. And to let go of that, what do we have left? We have nothing left. Because we can't imagine what we would have left from the place of being caught up in those thoughts. Our imagination isn't big enough. It can't hold who we fully are, who we truly are. It cannot hold our true humanness until we experience it for ourselves. And if I'm not my thoughts, if I'm not my feelings, who the hell am I? There's no place else to turn. It may never occur to us that we've built a towering castle of sand and water on a beach at low tide. And you know what's going to happen. The tide's going to come in. It always does. May never occur to us that our machinations of holding on to a fixed sense of ourselves, of me being this way and not that way, cannot stand in reality. It cannot stand in reality. And we try. We try to make it stand. We're slapping sand on that castle as quick as we can. And if we're paying attention, we may see how much overt suffering and subtle suffering that causes, how much pain that causes. Are we ever still? Are we ever still? I've said this before, but it's, it, it struck me so much because this happens in Zen and Buddhism all the time that on my last trip to New Zealand, we went with a friend, a Christian friend, who's devoutly, devoutly Christian, born-again Christian. And she's been studying the Bible her whole life and lives out of it. And she went with us, Aho and I, as we toured New Zealand and put on workshops and retreats and sat. And for the first time in her life, she sat. First time. The first time she sat, she came up to me afterwards and she said, so that's what she said to start. She couldn't speak. She said, now I know what Christ meant when he said, be silent and know God. And although I didn't say this to her, she was in samadhi. I don't know how many of you the first time you sat were in samadhi, but it doesn't happen very often. And it's not necessarily a measure. In this case, it is a measure. It's a measure of her devote practice for all those years, now using a way to actually encounter God directly within herself. And she knew it. 
She knew it. And she's a very close friend. We've known her for 40 plus years. And so her, her, her understanding of her religion and her life pivoted in that moment. So are we ever still? Are we ever still enough to see without the endless mind commentary, which is usually in some subtle way self-critical? So vast is the robe. How vast? That's what Zazen is introducing ourselves to. How vast is this robe? Vast is the robe of liberation. This robe, specific. And yet everyone in this room is wearing this robe. You're wearing your clothes. That's your robe. That proclaims your life. Our original nature is always present, is always who we are. It's always in the clothing we wear, in the actions we do, in the person we are. We may not have realized that for ourselves to any degree, but it's always present. It cannot not be present. And the person who does the most evil deeds, and probably a lot of us in this room can think of some examples, it's there, which is also a warning of how to think and what generosity to extend to all beings. Are you okay in the green shirt? Do you need to go to a chair? I'm sorry, no, I'm fine. Okay. So how vast are we? How vast is the robe of liberation? Is it the vastness from the Atlantic to the Pacific? Is it the height of mountains and the depths of the seas? We chant. We chanted this morning. Buddha nature pervades the whole universe, existing right here now, beyond space and time, all space, all time. It's unimaginable, and yet it's right here, right now. I mentioned yesterday that scientists have encountered a neutrino the first time, and there have been neutrinos before, whatever a neutrino is, uh, but it goes through everything. And they've managed to locate this particular neutrino from a, a, a specific galaxy, which is infinitely far away. But that galaxy, which we can't even imagine how big and what it is, shot this remarkably small particle into Earth until it hits something that we can measure. And you think your life has no effect on people? Everything you do and say and think has an effect. If that neutrino could think like you could, do you think a million, million, million years ago when it got spun off in that galaxy and has been traveling through space and time, would ever think, well, I'm going to hit something when I get Earth, get to Earth. And those scientists, scientists, this is a big discovery. It has a lot of implications because scientists measure, so they're measuring. And then they can theorize about those measurements. More suffering. (laughs) Necessary suffering. 
what you do and what you say matters. And it matters because you are this vastness. Vast is the robe of liberation. There's a path to liberation. And you're wearing the robe of it. It's the clothing all of us dress with this morning. And yet you have to see that for yourself. I keep coming back to that. I keep coming back to Zazen. Vast is the robe of liberation. A formless field of benefaction. Formlessness is the basis of what we are. The reason we can be vast is that form is empty. And the reason we can experience that for ourselves is that emptiness is form. It's not that they're interpenetrated. It's not that they're two sides of the same thing. They're the whole of it. When you say form, there's emptiness. When you say emptiness, there's form. By the way, emptiness is not a thing either, so don't get confused by another thing called emptiness. There's not much, if anything, you can say about emptiness. And it's not nothingness. So formlessness is the basis of who we are, and this is what we're denying. This is what we will not acknowledge, not in these words, but in the possibility that we are formless. And because we're formless, we reach everywhere and manifest as this body and mind. And so we chanted, this morning, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva of compassion, doing the Prajnaparamita, Sazen, clearly saw emptiness of all the five conditions, thus completely relieving misfortune and pain. Form is no other than emptiness, emptiness no other than form. Form is exactly emptiness. Emptiness exactly form. And then it goes on to list all different perspectives of form and sensation and awareness. All empty. All empty. All a formless field of benefaction. What makes it benefaction? The fact that that emptiness is form. The fact of you is what makes it benefaction. So how do we realize that? Many of us have heard over and over again the teaching that to study ourself is to study the Buddha way. To study ourself is to forget the self. That's what we do. We sit zazen to forget our separate sense of self, not as a fixed thing. I forgot myself. I don't know who I am. Where's my wallet? But as... A moment of this being not being lodged in my self-regard and selfishness. Of 
presence, awareness of this moment. And to deeply forget the self out of deep samadhi is a realization. It's a realization of the emptiness of this self. And when we forget the self, that's to be manifested by everything, by this vastness of the world. When you forget yourself, you are being manifested by everything you can encounter, see, affect you. How big is that? It's bigger than planet Earth. So there's an option, as the Buddha noted, of not protecting ourself, but investigating ourself, of taking the same self that we fiercely protect and will continue to fiercely protect. So give up that idea that we're not going to protect ourselves. We are. But we can study that process. And in the study, the study is enough, in and of itself, to change the process. Why? Because it has no fundamental reality. We're just making this shit up as we're going along. We're just doing the best we can not to hurt as we're going along. And that creates distance from our life. When you segregate out the parts that hurt, you segregate out the joy. They're the same thing, the two halves of two faces of the same coin. And so when we place this rock so on top of our head and chant the gatha, we're committing to this study. And that's the power of a chant, of a liturgy. It's a total dedication. It's a commitment. For me, it's a declaration of loving awareness in the moment. Is this not a formless field of benefaction when we love, when we're kind to all that we meet, when we practice that? Because clearly we're not kind to all that we meet. But when we practice that, is that not a formless field of benefaction? Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. I wear the Tathagata's teaching. This is personal, it's a vow. This is intensely personal. We're not used to this kind of personal. We're used to living on the surface of personal, which is about desire and avoidance of what we don't want. That's the surface of personal. That's the society we live in. But vows are at the heart of this practice. So when you sit zazen, where does zazen lead? It leads to deep within you. It leads to an understanding that as you begin to address your own suffering, you can only reach a certain point before the suffering of all other beings becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. Why is that? Because there are no other beings. It's just you. It's just you. It's always been just you.
And so, you know, Trump or Rinpoche used to say, you know, if you have any other choice than to do this practice, take that. Because this is going to scrape your bones. He didn't say that, but I'm saying that. This is going to scrape your bones. And yet, you can no longer live life in that shallowness. It's not acceptable. There's too much suffering and pain in this world. And you're experiencing that. To one degree or another, is your own suffering and pain. And you may fight that. And you can, good luck, keep fighting that. But you're fighting that by creating a wall around yourself. And it may feel overwhelming. But it doesn't have to be. It's only overwhelming if you stake out your position and say, this is me and that's not me. And it's always been this way. So this is a conscious choice. These are conscious choices. Every one of us, every day, makes these conscious choices to practice or not. Our vows need attention. They need a commitment. They need renewal. And so we do fusatsu, renewal of vows, during Ango, three times. Ango's coming up. We'll be doing that ceremony. One of those times we're going to do it on a Sunday. We did it last Ango on a Sunday, and it deeply affected people. Usually we do it on a Thursday night. And vows are not something we should easily make. And they need consideration. They need care. They need inquiry. And vows can die, but they can also be resuscitated. And when we're making these vows, we're making these vows to ourself. To wear the teachings of wholeness and love to myself and thus to all beings. And we're staking ourselves on this, not as an accomplishment, because it's never accomplished, but as a practice, as an aspiration, as a deepening of your inquiry, as an exploration of who you in fact are beyond all the bullshit and words that we use to describe ourselves, that we pin ourselves down with, that we limit ourselves, that we protect ourselves just in case we might fail in some way. You can't fail this vow. That's the wonder of it. You can only fail with your thoughts and ideas about failure. You can't fail this vow if you take it seriously. It's a vow of wholeness, of integrity. And there's no way to understand this intellectually. There's no way. It's so interesting. Sometimes when people, you know, there's people who practice, who are students, who wouldn't consider taking the precepts at all, ever. And then something happens, coming out of Zazen and practice. And nothing can keep them away from it. They're hounding the teacher every time they go in. <laughs> you know, when can I take the precepts? When can I? This isn't universal. But something has connected for them that they're staked on. Vast is the robe, and I apologize for taking time, but I want to I complete this. It's important. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. I wear the Tathagata's teaching, saving all sentient beings. That's the point.
You want to know where zazen goes? That's where it goes. Do you realize that the first three lines, vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction, I wear the Tathagata's teaching, is the same as the last line, just a restatement, saving all sentient beings? There's no difference at all between them. It's where our practice meets reality. It's what makes our practice real. What makes it real is that in a moment we're going to chant, sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them. And of course, any idiot knows that there's no possibility of saving all sentient beings, is there? It's too many, right? And so when you look at it from that perspective, it's overwhelming. You can't possibly do that. And there are three more vows to pile on top of that that you can't possibly do. Well, what perspective is that coming from? Me doing it? I can't do that. I'm failing again in my life. From that perspective, you're absolutely right. But fundamentally, you can't fail. The wonder of Zazen is it takes you into your body and mind. So that's where the practice is. That's where it starts. That's where it ends. That's the wholeness of it. Every human being is in here. In here. You can't fail if there's an integrity to the vow, if there's a practice to the vow, if there's a measurement of that vow, you've already failed. Because it has nothing to do with success or failure. We're not given to know that, let alone about our own practice. We're not given to know that. But it's where our practice meets reality. It's because we can't possibly succeed that it's real, that it constantly constantly invites us to look how we might fulfill a vow that can't be found, filled, fulfilled. And that's wondrous. You get a life. You get a wholeness to your life when that happens. You get a happiness to your life. You get a completeness to your life. You get a joy to your life when it's not about the result. It's about me in the best possible sense of me. All of us. That's what it's about. It's about you in the best possible sense of you. And that includes me. Thank you. Thank you for including me in your practice. I need you to do that. I desperately need you to do that. I can't do this alone. So where do you start? You start where you are. That's all. Right where you are exactly where you are. Trust that and go from there. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. I am wearing the Tathagata's teaching and I vow to save all sentient beings. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about the monastery's programs, weekend retreats, and residency, please visit our website at zmm.mro.org.